0: Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. In the studio with me, via Zoom, Ron Freed. Now, Ronald K. Freed has written a book about the Prime Minister of the Underworld, and he was an immensely important man in that transition from the old Mustache Pete days on into the modern crime syndicate. He was kind of, I'd say, the brains behind Lucky Luciano, in in my opinion. But anyhow, Ronald's written a book about the Prime Minister of the Underworld. So, Ron, welcome. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. So tell me, uh, I know this is a novel. It's a novelized form, but it's based on facts. Right. Like, how, how did you go about, you know, uh, how do you go about doing that, Trans- well, translating yeah. facts into the novelization form?
1: Well, uh, one of the things that I noticed, i like, worked on a TV show about the history of organized crime, about founding of the New York Mafia. What I noticed is that a lot of the uh, mistakes, historical errors or rumors or myths or plain old nonsense, from one book to the next book to the next book, get repeated and repeated and repeated. So I thought it was really hard to get at the truth uh, for a number of reasons. One is that um, it's not as though like the history department at Harvard University has studied this and figured out exactly what happened. Uh, the The other problem is that all the people who were there when these events unfolded, were actually criminals, right? And one thing we know about criminals is uh, they lie a lot, right? They do not tell the truth. And they make up stories, and they're very self-aggrandizing. Uh, when you're dealing with the history of organized crime, particularly in those sort of mythical days of the, of, 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 of the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, is, there's a lot of exaggeration, a lot of lies, and there's a lot of nonsense. People want to believe things that simply aren't true. So I thought that a novel would be, uh, would be one way to try to get at the truth. However, I wanted it to be historically accurate. So what I did was I, I wrote a novel in which um, everything that Frank Costello says on the record, he actually said. So what he said in court, what he said in interviews, and what he said in the keepover hearings, televised congressional hearings about organized crime in America. That's all. Those are actually his words. He gave interviews. He held a press conference. Um, this is a guy who loved to testify, loved to talk about himself. So there was a considerable record. And then the things that he says in private to Meyer Lansky, to, uh, to Joe Adonis, to his wife, that was all invented. Or his inner thoughts, you know, what he thought about Frank COVID. what he thought about Thomas Dewey, these people who were prosecuting him, what he thought of the, the congressmen and senators, were. Uh, Confronting him on television—that I made up—but I think that having studied uh, Frank Costello quite a bit, you know, I I hope that it's it's somewhat accurate. To um, it's it's plausible. It's a plausible version of what he might be thinking, uh, what made him angry, what he what he resented, and what he was proud of. Now, the idea of the novel is that Frank is older here, and he's looking back, and he's trying to tell the truth. And you know, you could ask, "Was Frank Costello capable of telling the truth?" I don't know, because, you know, he did at one point agree to, um, to write a memoir with um, Peter Moss, right? And they met, and this is before Costello died, and they were ready to get going. But what Peter Moss said afterwards is that Costello just wanted to uh, talk about how legitimate he was. And that was one of the things about Frank Costello. He had his foot in two worlds, right? So Frank Costello was both, after Lucky Luciano was first imprisoned and then deported, Frank Costello was the acting head of the Genevieve Scribe family. That was one hat that he wore. He wore another hat, which is that he was very politically powerful. Uh, he was, in a sense, the head of Tammany Hall, which is the Democratic Party, which in New York City politics means a lot. So that he could, he could veto uh, the nomination of a judge, uh, he could make sure that uh, someone that he approved of became the, the boss of Tammany Hall. And when Frank Costello held a fundraiser trying to prove his legitimacy for the Salvation Army, congressmen, senators, judges, they all had to come because Frank invited them. And, and, but at that same party, Vito Genovese was there. So <laughs> there was these two worlds coming together. And what's interesting about Costello is that he, that, that he had that fundraiser. So why did he have that fundraiser? Because he wanted to think of himself as legitimate, as a legitimate citizen, right? But what happened, it backfired on him, as many of those efforts to be legitimate did because once word leaked out that Frank Costello had thrown this fundraiser at the Copacabana, which he secretly controlled, the newspapers loved the story. So it was all over the Cowboys, and, and he was embarrassed and ultimately the Salvation Army had to um, you know sort of backpedal and distance themselves from Frank Costello. Um, and that, that's what interested me about Costello, was his desire to, to seem like a legitimate person. That struck me as interesting, sort of poignant, really. Was I was interested in, in how that backfired on him and led him to make decisions, which you know, objectively were not good decisions. If, he, if, if what you want to do as the head of Genevieve's crime family is keep your head down, not be written about, be ignored, stay under the radar, don't put your finger... In the eye of prosecutors who, who really want to put you in jail, that's, that's a long, long answer to one question.
0: Yeah, well, that's it uh, that was a good one though. It explains a lot about Frank Costello and his public persona, because yeah. he was really public at the time, and, and and the the politics, how how powerful he was politically, and why was that? You know, we were holding fundraisers for the Salvation Army and and things like that. So he was he was also. He knew the power of the dollar. I imagine he was giving a lot of money to New York. Well, indigenous. One of the things, I mean, what happened is, as, as, as,
1: as, as I'm sure you know, right? Without prohibition, no huge amount of organizing, no mafia, no, no American mafia, mafia, mafia right? no right. money. Prohibition was really bad the legislation in a number of ways. Uh, for one thing, it uh, corrupted all the police officers in big cities, right? Because they didn't want to enforce these rules, right? It corrupted citizens, right? Because it turned. A citizen who just wanted a beer into a a lawbreaker, right? So it spread corruption. And one thing that Frank Costello did, he he was a corrupt. Mm-hmm. so he continued that tradition by corrupting politicians and judges. And how did he do it? He did it with all the money that the mob had uh, from from Prohibition. So they used that money to, uh, in a way, purchase political influence. It wasn't like you know, a fundraiser today. They had either. They had the threat of, of violence behind everything that they that they said and did. Um, and that really, you know, there's a line in the novel that uh, uh, money is power, greed is a powerful thing, but it was fear, mm-hmm. you know. So they had both things working for them because Frank
0: Costello didn't have to
1: even make an explicit threat.
0: It was understood. He was a corruptor. And how he corrupted people after Prohibition was over was with slot machines because yes. people like to gamble as well as drink. So now right, still illegal, and so he really got into the slot machines and slot business big time, which continued, policemen don't really like to uh, in- enforce exactly. gambling laws because they like to gamble. And you know politicians don't like to enforce and pass gambling laws particularly because they like to gamble. But there's right. always a, a group of citizens out there that think, that gambling should be illegal. It should not be available. You know, it's all over the place now. We've got guys that spent a lot of time for sports gambling. Now right. every, every state practically has sports gambling legalized as well as the casinos. As As he got into that, then LaGuardia, he must have lost some political power because LaGuardia cracked down on the slots and drove him right. really out of New York. So how did into, he lose in, that? Into New Orleans. Um, yeah, right. So he had, there were slot machines
1: in candy stores all over you know small stores mom and pop stores all over um all over the city um and uh they're called one-armed bandits uh, my, one of my favorite little facts about this was that in order to get money from children one of costello's ideas is he put a, a step in front of these slot machines so the little kid could stand on it and could reach the slots and put its coins in. To... what's interesting about laguardia is that laguardia was not a part of Tammany Hall, right? He wasn't a Democrat, right? He ran as a Republican slash independent. So he he, so he wasn't a part of Frank Costello. He ran, in a sense, in opposition to Frank Costello's political machine. And it, it's interesting that uh, the things you just mentioned, alcohol, Costello's in the alcohol business, gambling, Costello was in the gambling business, uh, essentially juice loans, right? Loan sharking, right? Well, you know, what does the credit card companies charge now, right? You know, 25% interest on your purchase of a sofa. I mean, so many of these things that were criminalized in Frank Costello's day are legal now. So in a sense, those that legislation created an opportunity for for someone like Frank Costello or, or any of the gangsters. There's actually a line in the novel I put in to sort of amuse myself, which is the lawyer uh, Frank Costello says, I'm like, well, why don't they just legalize it and his, and his, uh, his, uh, his lawyers I would, they'll never legalize like off-track betting, that'll never happen in the United States <laughs> well it all happened you know, um, anyway yeah. so after, after uh, LaGuardia made a big show out of cracking down on the slots, um, Costello moved his slot machines down to uh, New Orleans and he sent his brother-in-law uh, down there to uh, oversee the operation along with uh, some of the other this other gambling crowd, was that Phil New York. Castell? yes exactly uh Dandy Phil Castell was his partner in, okay. in in gambling his brother-in-law uh was someone else but who, who went down to New Orleans and, and worked in that he also the casino uh, outside of the uh, I think the uh, the limits of, of New Orleans so he was able to to run a fairly high-end casino there but I think he had to cut in the uh, the bosses in New Orleans as well. And, and Huey Long, who was, I don't know, I guess he was the governor of the center at that time, I'm not really sure. He had to get a piece of the action. So, supposedly Danny Phil Costello made sure that every month in a lockbox in a hotel there was a certain amount of cash available sort of for, uh, for,
0: uh, for the governor or
1: the center really wants to, to pick up at that time.
0: Now, you mentioned Huey P. Long. Yeah. Did you run across that story about how uh, Costello... Saved him from a beating in a bathroom. H- yes, yes,
1: yes, 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 yes. Um, I don't know whether that's true, but it gets repeated a lot. Um, one thing I didn't put, uh, speaking of men's rooms, um, I don't know if you can use this not, but it's pretty fun. I didn't put this in, but Costello, he liked to gamble about everything. You know, Basically, if he didn't have a bet on a ball game or a fight or whatever, he, he didn't feel like he was in the action. So he almost needed that to, to feel alive. and he, he bet a lot of money. One of the things he did was he could he would bet with his friends on who could pee for the longest, for lack of a better phrase to put it. Yeah, this whole method for how he did it, like you don't drink a lot of water beforehand, you drink some. And he said
0: that a lot of men have pissed away a fortune. I'm the only man who made a
1: fortune pissing.
0: <laughs> I had not heard that story before. That's a good one. Yeah, you know, you stick with me, I'll give you all the highbrow stuff. <laughs> really? <laughs> So down in New Orleans, he's operating down there, but he has people down there. So does he establish any kind of residence or does he stay in New York? He's a born and bred New Yorker, you know, famous I mean, for sitting around on up the Upper East Side having an apartment and sitting in yeah. Central Park. And yeah. No, I think- that Louisiana?
1: He went back and forth, but no, he didn't He didn't really live there. I mean, he trusted Phil Castell and uh, it was a successful operation. He also had interest in- Meyer Lansky's uh, casinos in Broward County in Florida. So I think he would go down there just to, to check on his business, um, and then later, of course, in New Orleans, a big part in in Las Vegas, uh, and then. But then you know he couldn't he, he couldn't really speak on the phone that much because his phone was
0: tapped, and that's how he he, he got into a lot of trouble because of the wiretaps on his phone. You know, Wiretaps. There was no wiretap law, one way or the other, back in those days. So those would all have been were they able to use those. And did you find those in court files, actual transcripts, or? Well, you know, um, I actually didn't dig into the. Uh, I didn't. I didn't read the
1: transcripts of his phone calls, but there are some famous passages that that I didn't incorporate. And and the most famous thing is that he got a call from uh, a judge named Aurelio, who had just been promoted for magistrate to be nominated for both parties. This indicates how much power he had to be on the uh, pre the state of New York. So uh, Aurelio would come to see Costello previously to ask for his tell, calls Frank Costello and says, uh, and Frank Costello said, you know, he says, I want to thank you and I pledge my undying loyalty. And Frank Costello says, when I tell you something is in the bag, it's in the bag. The New York District Attorney Frank Hogan made sure that that was in the newspapers. That was a huge scandal. And then there was a public hearing about it, uh, whether or not to just far really to take away the nomination. And Costello was called to testify. Yeah, when he testified, he bragged about all of his legitimate friends. But then he didn't deny that he knew all these other people like Al Capone, and like Luciano, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when he was finished, his lawyer, George Wolf turned to him and said, you love it, don't you? You, you love to testify. And he did. You know, He loved to sort of get out there and brag. That's what got him into trouble. And in their later life, he would, he would give interviews. One amazing thing that I came across is that you know they were really after him, both the federal government, uh, that era's version of the Drug Enforcement Administration, as well as Frank Hogan in New York. They were really after Costello. And so they put out a story that he was in charge of importing heroin into, uh, into New York. He had sort of famously stated that he loathed the drug industry, uh, illegal drugs, and he wasn't involved in it. So he, he held a press conference, and I had the transcript of the press conference. The, the amazing thing about the press conference is that you know, he, he puts himself out there, and he's going to deny it, and he somehow thinks that this is going to be good for his reputation. But in fact, he's incredibly vulnerable because he can't answer half the questions. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like, Were you the biggest owner of slot? Were you the big, did you run more slot machines than anyone else in New York? Well, I wouldn't say that. I don't know anything about this thing they call the mafia, you know. So he really, and they would ask him specific questions, and he go, "I'd prefer not to say. I don't want to. I think, that he was vulnerable in ways that he didn't understand or was in denial about. So I think that he had a certain amount of a naivete about where he stood in society. You know what I mean? I think that perhaps had to do with being an immigrant, and that that, in a sense, brought his down. And to me, that was the crux of the story. And you see that. And the, re- re- the real reason I wrote the book was I was really fascinated. With, like, why did he agree to testify on the Keith over here? Because others, I just took the fit. I'm not going to talk about. him. Yeah. But Costello thinks, well, I can talk to these people. I'm, I'm one of them. You know, I hobnobbed in New York with all these judges. I'm going to talk to them. But he didn't understand how vulnerable he was, as I just said. And there was something else that made it fascinating to me, is that these were the first major congressional hearings that were televised right? And no one at that point really understood the power of television. It was a new medium, but it was a complete sensation. People weren't going to the movies. They were watching it on television. And when people went to television, uh, went to the movies, they didn't want to see uh, what the movie was. They said, put the TV on. We want to see Frank still testify. Uh, stores, department stores were, were saying open late because people were, were watching this live on television and it was coast to coast. He
0: became a star when he really didn't want to be a star in today's world he's most famous for that line you must have in your mind something you've done that you can speak of to your credit as an american citizen if so what are they
1: paid my tax <laughs> and then when they laugh he looks surprised yeah and that's honestly that's why i wrote the novel yeah. an afterward, where you see what happened to him afterwards but it was to get to that point and that's in a sense where the novel ends you know, there's an afterward. Afterwards, and shows you what happened to Frank a little To me, the drama of that and how he, how he sort of wised up about where he really is in, in American society. That's why I wrote the novel, and that's why I t- decided to, to tell it in the first person because I wanted to imagine what his inner voice might be like, what he was feeling, what he was thinking, how much he hated those congressmen, how much he resented them, how much he thought. And I know that this to be true that. Had he been born elsewhere, he would have had a very different life because he was very gifted. He ran an, an immense bootlegging operation, you know, importing enormous amounts of, of of booze into this country. It was very complicated. He had, you know, a shipping empire really to bring the booze in. He was he had he had airplanes to track where the Coast Guard was. He, you know, they were bribing the Coast Guard in a very elaborate way. I mean, it was a pretty brilliant operation that he had going. So, you know. He, he always thought, might he have used that that talent elsewhere? The New York Corporation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, that, that that's what made him vulnerable. And if he's if the character is vulnerable, uh, then he's interesting because he's got two sides
0: to him. That makes the story interesting. Really, you know, for me, that's that's what has always drawn me to the mafia and the men in it that run it. Is that if take them out of that criminal organization and put them into legitimate business, they'd be successful. I have write this guy that here in Kansas City that went to jail for a drug little drug ring he had and, and I've gotten to know him since he got back. Oh, yeah. He he's connected and, and he started he got now legitimate loan sharking, but it's a buy here, pay here car business and they yeah. charge huge amounts of money on that. But but poor people, I mean that's you know, that's the only way they can get a car and you got to have a car yeah. in Kansas City and he made really good money and now he's retired from that and doesn't have to work i mean if he didn't, i told him i said if you'd just done this back in 1990 <laughs> you wouldn't have spent 12 years in the penitentiary and you'd be a multi i know i know i've learned my lesson so
1: well yeah but there yes there there, there are folks like that and then there are uh, gangsters who um uh, a sociopath. A vehicle you know, really, in a vase comes a Really, <laughs> you know, who you wouldn't want living next to you. Or, or Dutch, yeah. Dutch Schultz, who really was... I mean, these people were... Uh, were serial killers. <laughs> I mean, they really were. They had no empathy for their victims. And, uh, well,
0: it's, uh, he's an interesting guy never ending you know bunch of stories about him he's complicated and working both levels he was the first guy that was really skimming out of las vegas that we found out about and you know that was before las vegas was las vegas in a way it wasn't really anything to anybody outside of the the few mob guys that had the uh foresight to invest in that casino out there the first casino the flamingo Flamingo. one of the others so it's uh and, and that's been, uh, for years, that was their lifeblood, that skimming out of casino, that gambling money is, you know, has been their lifeblood. You know, now that it's all legal, I don't know where they make their money now. I hear from internet scams, but I don't know. All right. Ronald K. Freed, it's Frank Costello, a novel. That's the correct title? That is correct. Ronald K. Fried, thanks a lot for showing up and uh, imparting your wisdom about, your knowledge about one of the more important figures of the early transition of organized crime from the black handers to the national crime syndicate without men like Frank Costello, it might not have made that transition and made so much money during the uh, prohibition. So it's uh, he's an interesting guy. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Well, guys, you know, I ride motorcycles and uh, don't forget look out for motorcycles when you're out there on the streets. And if you or your friends or relatives or somebody, you know, has a problem with PTSD, If they've been in the service, go to the VA website and get that hotline. There's help available. Okay. Thanks a lot, Ronald. Thanks, Gary.
1: I appreciate it.